Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Physiology Corner with Professor Howard. I am your host, Professor Howard, and today I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the female reproductive system and some stuff about sexual differentiation, and then we'll kind of give an audio walkthrough of the female reproductive system, and then in another episode, I will do the same thing for the male reproductive system, as well as discussing um, some stuff around sex development and uh, intersex folks and other sort of stops along the uh, sexual and reproductive anatomy spectrum, because biologically, there is a spectrum. So... Let's begin with female reproductive system stuff. And to do this, I want to first talk about eggs. So in the female gonad, which is the ovary, way, way back in history, all of us, you and me and everyone we know, we used to be a cell called an oogonium. The reason my voice wavered when I was saying the first part of that word is because it's spelled O-O-G-O-N-I-U-M. So these are the stem cells that give rise to what will eventually be the quote-unquote egg. But we have some steps to undergo first. So in our grandmother's womb, while our mothers were developing, the mother's fetus, our mother's fetus, began to develop ogonia, which are those stem cell egg precursor little thingies. And so, as the ovary was forming, the ogonia in our moms, while they were fetuses, were multiplying and developing to create what will eventually be the finite supply of eggs that our moms had during their reproductive window. Among those oogonia, which by the time of birth have differentiated into a primary oocyte, that is set during fetal development. So by the time our moms were born, they had all of the potential eggs they were ever going to have. And so that's what sets the reproductive window for females. But why am I talking about grandmas? Well, here's the cool thing. Since our mothers formed their oogonia while gestating in our grandmothers, and since all of a person's oogonia are the chances they have to make a new human, that means that the oogonium, which would eventually become you and eventually become me, was inside the developing fetus of our mother while also inside our grandmother. So you were, and I was, amazingly, at one point, both inside of our mother and also inside of our grandmother, which is amazing. Isn't that cool? So sometimes when I'm explaining science stuff, people ask me, uh, you know, doesn't knowing all this stuff about the inner workings take the wonder out of life. Um, there's no mystery in it for you, it seems like. And they could not be more wrong. 
there's still tons of mystery, lots of stuff that science doesn't know about lots of things, including reproduction and the hows and whys and whats of how that gets accomplished or not. But even in facts, like the one I just shared with you about us being inside both of our moms and our grandmas at the same time, that's incredible to think about. And it lends a new significance to the role of grandmothers that I hadn't considered before I learned that. So if you are wondering if being a scientist and knowing science stuff sucks the wonder out of life for me, the answer is absolutely not. It does the opposite. I am filled with wonder every single day about the human body and the world around me because the deeper you go, the more you realize you don't know. So I would encourage you to pursue biology and or human anatomy and physiology uh, with the same kind of underlying motivation. So be comfortable with not knowing stuff and be comfortable with using inquiry to try and find that stuff out. That's the kind of main idea of a scientist's job is being comfortable with not knowing, admitting when you're wrong, and trying really hard to find out what's correct. So that's that. All right, so once your mom was born, and my mom was born, all of the ogonia in our mothers had disappeared and left behind in their place were primary oocytes. So oogonia are stem cells and they reproduced by mitosis. So classical cell division, you know, with prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, that whole, that whole song and dance that you're used to hearing about probably since high school. And then after mitosis stops, the next step is, of course, meiosis. Here's the thing, though. The way you probably learned about meiosis was after you learned about mitosis, you learned there's another kind of cell reproduction. It's called meiosis. It has a first stage and a second stage, and it's for making sperm and eggs. So that's a baseline of knowledge for most people that are going to be listening to this podcast. What they don't tell you right away when they're teaching you about meiosis is that for cells that experience meiosis, they don't go straight through it all at once in a perfect straight line. So how does this matter and why for what we're talking about? Well, it matters because at the time of our mother's birth, there were no more ogonia. So no more opportunities to increase cell number via mitosis. And the primary oocytes that are present in a female fetus at the time of birth, they are all paused at the beginning of prophase one, the first part of meiosis. So they get to the part where the chromatin starts condensing in, into chromosomes, and then they just stop and wait. And that waiting period lasts from infancy until, of course, puberty arrives. So these are two important pauses, this is the first of two, rather, uh, in meiosis and meiotic development in the female gonad. So what's the other one? Well, the other one is every month at the onset of puberty and every month thereafter, 
a handful of those primary oocytes begin to undergo the rest of meiosis at the command of the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus sends gonadotropin-releasing hormone out to interact with the egg and the ovaries and say, hey, it's time to start developing. And so those select few primary oocytes will proceed the rest of the way through meiosis one. And one of them typically is ovulated. Sometimes it's more than one, we'll get to that later. But usually one is ovulated. And the one that is ovulated ovulates paused in metaphase two, meaning there's a second pause there. The only way that that particular oocyte, which is now a secondary oocyte, will complete meiosis is if fertilization by a spermatozoan occurs. So the completion of meiosis in female gametes is contingent on fertilization. And if you're thinking that's weird uh, or striking, you're right. However, if you think about it from a practical perspective, for an egg, there's no point in finishing meiosis unless you're going to make a new person. Because the egg is not the gamete that leaves the body and has to go somewhere else. That's the sperm's job. So sperm have to arrive in the female reproductive tract fully meiosed and with their genetic components all ready to go. But since the female gamete, the egg, doesn't have to do that, then it doesn't really matter if they complete meiosis or not unless there's a fertilization event. So from a practical and logical perspective, it actually makes sense, even though it seems weird, because we're used to thinking about meiosis as a set of guaranteed steps, not a set of steps where at various points the egg pauses and says, well, maybe, maybe I'll proceed. We'll see. Okay, so returning to this little story we have going about our grandmothers and mothers, where we left off was our moms were born and then there was a duration between, you know, infancy and puberty where our moms did not really have much going on in the ovary because that's what childhood is for, a development of other things. And then at some point, our mothers all received their first menstrual period as a consequence of their first ovulation. And also I want to point out, it's not just one oocyte, again, that begins developing every month. It's a few, and typically only one is ovulated. So the number of reproductive chances that a person with ovaries in the uterus loses every cycle is more than just one, which is why the reproductive window for people with uteruses and ovaries is shorter than for people with testes who make sperm. So that is just an undeniable biological fact, um, a fact that is made a really big deal of in society. So it has societal pressures overlaying it around having children and the importance of families and stuff. But we're doing a science class. We don't care about that here. So it's an indefatigable biological certainty that there's a very specific reason why female reproductive windows are shorter than male reproductive windows. So let's take, for example, the ovulatory event 
that resulted in you and me coming into being. And I'm going to use me as the prime example here just because it's easier to say myself. So, and I also happen to know details about my conception which make the story a little bit more robust and memorable. Don't worry, I won't be sharing anything raunchy with you. Don't panic. So, when my mother was 31, she ovulated the egg that would eventually become me. So, during meiosis, all of the chromosomes are duplicated and then split such that we have a haploid gamete. But since every female person, with some weird, cool exceptions, which I'll explain later, every female person has two X chromosomes, so they can only pass on an X chromosome. So whether or not I turned out uh, genetically female or genetically male was uh, really determined by my father because the sperm can carry an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. So, when my mom was 31, the copulatory event that conceived me happened. And my father's sperm at that time was carrying an X chromosome, so I ended up, as far as I know anyway, with XX. Why do I say as far as I know? We'll get to that more in another episode, but there are places where it's possible to be uh, have a trisomy in the sex chromosome so you can be xxy or xyy etc um, so there's some aneuploidies which is a word that means incorrect amount of chromosomes that create some various configurations of sexual genetics and organs that we'll discuss later but as far as i know i've never been haplotyped so i don't know if i'm xxy i assume not um, so as far as I know, I have an X and an X because I came out phenotypically female. So that's, that's what I mean by that. Alrighty. So eventually I was born and I don't remember that, but my mom says it was cool, except for the fact that I lingered in the birth canal a bit long, which means I came out with a pointy head and left my mom with some pelvic floor damage. I'm sorry, mom. So in order to understand how my birth came to be, we gotta talk a little bit about uh, female reproductive anatomy and the parts of it that facilitate fertilization because fertilization is supposed to happen in a specific place and intromission of the penis into the vagina happens in a specific way to facilitate fertilization. So we're going to kind of do an audio tour of all that stuff. So I said the word intromission and I realize I haven't defined that yet. So intromission is the insertion of one person's body part into another person in order to pass or transmit a gamete. So a sperm or an egg. So in our species, uh, XY individuals with a penis are the people with the intermittent organ. So that's why sexual intercourse is required for fertilization. You have to get the spermatozoa as close to the egg as you possibly can for that to be likely. So intermission happens via the vagina, which is an opening in the bottom of the pelvis and it shares real estate with the urethra, which is right above it. So the 
opening of the urethra and the opening of the vagina sit in a f- space on the pelvic floor called the vestibule, um, which is just a place where those things open onto. Directly surrounding the vestibule are two labia minora. Singular of that is labium minus. And those are the inner fleshy lips of the vulva. And then on the outside of those, we have larger labia minora. Labium minus is the singular for that. And those are the ones that tend to be more keratinized and hairier. So above all that is the mons pubis, which is a fatty pad that sits over the pubic symphysis. And the glands of the clitoris, which is an erectile tissue, is at the top. So it's above the urethra. And then the crew of the clitoris, and that's spelled C-R-U-S, are these leg-like roots that go down from the glands on either side underneath the labia majora and minora. Um, So the the clitoris superficially looks fairly small, but it's actually quite a large structure that encompasses a lot of the vulva. And it is histologically just like the penis. And the reason it's just like the penis is because the clitoris and the penis are derived from the same embryonic structure. More on that later. So everybody starts out with the same bits and then sex differentiation happens during fetal development. So if you were to take a microscope slide of the clitoris, zoom it way far in and then put it right next to a microscope slide of the penis, you would find that you can't tell the difference because they're the same stuff. They're just arranged in different shapes. So that's what's the vulva, which is the outer part of the female reproductive structures. Um, And I want to, I'm being specific about that because the vulva includes the opening to the vagina, the opening to the urethra, the labia minora and majora, and the clitoris. Um, And it's not correct to use that term interchangeably with vagina. The vagina is an elastic muscular tube that connects the vulva to the inner reproductive parts, so they're different things. I know that in common parlance, people tend to use them interchangeably, but that's actually incorrect, so they're not the same. So what I would encourage is if you are talking about this stuff, make sure that you say vulva when you mean vulva and say vagina when you mean vagina, because they're not, they're not synonymous. Okay, so the vagina is not that deep. It's only about four inches deep, but because it's so elastic, it can stretch and change shape, and that includes accommodating a penis and also successfully passing a fetus through it. And it's very stretchy, and it rebounds to its original size after childbirth. Um, So there's a common misconception that the vagina is permanently damaged by childbirth and doesn't go back to the way it was before afterwards, it does. It just takes a little while. Uh, Being postpartum is no joke physiologically. Um, It takes time to heal from that, but the vagina does eventually go back to the way it was. 
So now we're coming up on the relationship between the uterus and the vagina. So the uterus has a portion called the cervix at the bottom of it. And the cervix is like a neck, kind of. And it sticks down into the vagina. And what I, when I say sticks down, what I mean is the vaginal canal widens as you go deeper into it and kind of fans out to form like a, almost like a wine glass shape. So it, it flanges. And sticking into that wine glass shape is a neck. So it's kind of like if you, imagine you have a glass and you you stack another glass into it, but the other glass sits partway into the first glass, but not all the way. So it's, its base is sticking down into the first glass, but there's a little pocket around the edge that is, you know, the, the neck, the bottom of the first glass is obviously distinct from the top of the second glass, and there's a little seam where the two meet. So that's kind of what the cervix looks like in the vagina. Um, it's one thing kind of wedged into another thing rather than a continuous tube. And if you're having a hard time visualizing what I'm talking about, go ahead and just open an image of the gross anatomy of the female reproductive system and you'll see what I mean. You'll see the cervix poking down into the vaginal canal and then on either side of the cervix, there's this sort of blind end, which is called the salpinx. So speaking of that, the reason that nothing can get quote-unquote lost in the vagina is because it's a blind-ended pouch and the opening of the cervix when a person is not delivering a child is real small. So you can't get condoms lost in there, objects cannot get lost in there. Um, it's a pouch or a tube rather with a defined ending. However, the salpinx, which is the little pocketed area between the cervix and the vagina, that can be tricky to access digitally due to the angle, because the vagina angles backward uh, in the pelvic, er, pelvic cavity. And so sometimes people have the misconception that something got lost inside of them when really it's just hiding in the salpinx and... They can't find it digitally using meaning with their fingers. So in that case, you might end up needing to go to the emergency department to have a gynecological professional fish, whatever it is, out. But the vast majority of the time, you don't need that. Um, so any people with fears about things getting lost in their vagina, rest assured, it isn't possible. Okay, so the cervix is the bottom part of the uterus and it extends into the vagina and it has an opening in the center and that is the place that a fetus passes through during labor and delivery and that the menstrual sluffage passes through during menstruation and that the sperm must try to make it through during fertilization and that's really tricky. So what I'm going to do now is talk from the perspective mm -hmm. of a spermatozoan trying to find its way to the appropriate location to fertilize the egg that will eventually become me. All right, so let's begin doing that. So after my parents engaged in sexual intercourse, 
there was a pool of semen with all of the activating substances in semen um, that basically woke up the spermatozoa that were in the semen. So they were like, hey, knock, knock, time to go. And the spermatozoa began using their flagella to swim. And the smart, cool thing about spermatozoa is that they can do something called chemotaxis, which is following scent trails. So they understand chemically where they're supposed to go because they can detect uh, the appropriate chemical signals of the cervix and uterus and basically try to access the cervical, cervical canal that way. So one of the biggest barriers to fertilization that is ordinarily faced by spermatozoa is the vagina is extremely acidic. It has to be because that's how it maintains cleanliness. So it tries to be acidic enough that bacteria can't grow. And the resident bacteria uh, basically function to keep that stuff in check. So you have good vaginal bacteria that are producing acid to protect their home, the vagina. And that does things like prevent yeast infections and all kinds of other good stuff. But sperm are very vulnerable to acid. It fries them. So the sperm want to get out of the vaginal canal as fast as they can. And some of them won't make it. Some of them end up swimming into the salpinks and being like, oh, there's a dead end here. Bummer. I guess I'll die now. The proud and the few who make it through the cervical mucus. Yes, there's a mucus plug in the cervix, which just helps to keep the internal environment of the uterus nice and clean and sterile and separate from the vagina most of the time. Um, if the spermatozoa successfully navigate through the mucinous gel of the cervical mucus plug, then they end up in the lumen of the uterus. And so they're going to sort of swim up and then they have a choice. They can either go left or right. And this presents a problem for spermatozoa because ordinarily only one ovary ovulates each month. Sometimes they both go at the same time, but it's not common. And so the sperm needs to make a decision about whether to go left or to the right. So 50-50 chance of going towards the egg or going to nothing and dying. So in my case, my father's spermatozoan happened to pick the correct direction. So let's say, I, I mean, I have no idea, no way of knowing, and neither does my mom. Uh, no way of knowing which ovary supplied the ovum that would become me. So let's just go with the left one, because I have to choose. So my dad's spermatozoan went up and then traveled to the left. And quite a few of its friends did as well, but not nearly as many as were deposited in the initial bolus of semen. So there is incredible attrition of spermatozoa between ejaculation and fertilization. And again, usually only one spermatozoan of millions and millions wins. So the odds are not good for any individual spermatozoan, but they try their best. So the spermatozoan carrying an X chromosome that would eventually become me swam to the left and, and it swam hard mm -hmm. and fast. It was trying to wriggle to its goal faster than everything else around it. And so 
Now it reaches the fallopian tube, also called the uterine tube or the oviduct. All of those words mean the same thing. So at this point, it faces another problem. The fallopian tube, the interior of it, is not a smooth tube like the inside of a straw. Instead, there are lots of finger-like projections of the mucosa of the inner lining poking into the lumen. So the lumen looks very busy with lots of nooks and crannies formed by these projections. And that is uh, also a barrier to sperm. So sometimes some sperm will get lost in there. Other sperm will get stuck and die. Some of them will be attacked by immune cells. So you lose even more spermatozoa between the entrance to the oviduct and the end of it. Now, at this time, the ovulated uh, oocyte, accompanied by some granulosa cells surrounding it, so it's not ovulated naked, it has a zona pellucida, which is a glycoprotein-y like, covering over it, and then outside of that it also has granulosa cells attached so additional barriers for spermatozoa. So at this time, that uh, group of cells is kind of bopping gently and slowly down the fallopian tube. And so the ideal site for fertilization is actually in the fallopian tube, which most students don't realize. They think it happens in the uterus, but it shouldn't happen in the uterus, and I'll explain why. So... The sperm that would eventually become me meets the egg that would eventually become me. And then my father's spermatozoan has to wriggle between all of the uh, granulosa cells that are guarding the egg. And then it has to get through the zona pellucida. And this is tricky because the zona pellucida is thick and tough and very resistant to sperm. So what happens is a little compartment in the spermatozoan's head uh, opens up and dumps digestive enzymes onto the zona pellucida, which allows it to kind of uh, chemically dissolve the area that it's in contact with, and then it can use its flagellum to sort of drill down as the enzyme erodes the zona pellucida. So the sperm that would eventually become me, it burrowed and it secreted and it burrowed and it secreted and eventually it made contact with and wriggled into the cell membrane of the ovum. Now, while this was happening, other spermatozoa were trying to do the same thing. My sperm that became me just happened to be first. And one thing we don't want is called polyspermy, which means too many spermatozoa fertilizing one egg. And why don't you want this? Well, that results in an incorrect amount of DNA, which creates a non-viable embryo. So we don't want that. So the egg fortunately has special measures that it takes to resist this. And there are little sort of packets ready to go of glycoproteins positioned between the egg and the zona pellucida. And once the first sperm head drills through and makes contact with the inside of the egg, the egg sets off those packets of glycoproteins 
and uh, proteoglycans and other stuff, and they mix with water, and they basically flash form this gel that radiates outward from the egg, and it basically functions to repel away any of the other spermatozoa. So basically, the first contact of sperm and egg with, uh, you know, genuine contact, so membrane to membrane, results in all subsequent spermatozoa being forcefully repelled by this magic force field that the egg throws out. So again, that's pretty amazing, right? Your egg puts its foot down and says, no more shall pass. I only want one. And it sends out a force field denying entry to any other spermatozoa. Crazy, right? Okay, so let's talk about why the, the fallopian tube is the best place for fertilization now that I've described it. The product of conception immediately after fertilization is called a zygote. And this is just the first cell of a new individual. So um, my egg has to finish meiosis two. So it goes through the rest of the phases from metaphase. And then the genetic result of that combines with the genetic information carried by the spermatozoan to form the new nucleus of the first cell of me. So my zygote forms in the fallopian tube, but it's a single cell right now, so it can't do the things that an embryo can do, like implant into the uterus. So it needs time to develop and get bigger so that by the time it gets to the uterus, it's ready to burrow in and it can do that. So this is why fertilization in the fallopian tube is ideal. Because after conception, as the zygote bounces along, kind of like the bouncing ball on top of text in Disney movies, I know that's a dated reference, but hopefully you get it, it's gently bopping along, and as it's doing so, it's dividing. So first there are two cells, and then there are four cells, etc., so forth. And so eventually, at the about the 16-cell stage, the, well, me because I'm still using myself as an example. So at about the 16-cell stage, I was called a morula, and I looked kind of like a clear raspberry. And then as I began to continue dividing, instead of a solid mass of cells, I became a hollow ball of cells called a blastocyst. And then that blastocyst formed a patch on its inner surface and began to differentiate into some layers called the endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm. And it is in this form that the embryo can successfully implant. And that takes time. So what the goal is, is to have an embryo with an endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm by the time that embryo reaches the uterus so that the embryo has all the right parts in it to successfully land on the endometrium of the uterus and implant in the endometrium of the uterus. So that's what happened. So imagine if fertilization occurs in the uterus, uh, that actually decreases the likelihood because the formation of an embryo that's capable of implanting takes time. And during that time, the ovary isn't receiving any signals that it should be saving the endometrium. So 
even if a pregnancy did occur, but it had, the fertilization happened in the uterus, the person carrying it will never know because the developing embryo is simply expelled with the rest of the endometrial lining and doesn't even make a blip because it's no different. It's too small to be noticed. So let me talk about why that happens and then just explain some things about what I just described. So the other issue of timing is that after ovulation, there's a scar left over on the ovary. So while my egg and oocytes are making their way down the fallopian tube, my ovary is busy converting the corpus hemorrhagicum, which is the bloody scar on the ovary left behind by ovulation. It converts that into a corpus luteum, which means yellow body. And that's because in fresh section, they appear yellow. So the corpus luteum's job is to form and then pump out progesterone. And that progesterone does two things. Thing one is it supercharges the growth of the endometrium so that the endometrium is in the correct shape and thickness to catch the embryo once the embryo gets there. And then once the embryo implants in the endometrium, the embryo begins pumping out a chemical called human chorionic gonadotropin. And this is the first communication between an infant and the person carrying the infant inside of them. Human chorionic gonadotropin diffuses over to the corpus luteum and tells the corpus luteum that a pregnancy has occurred, and so the corpus luteum needs to stick around until the placenta forms. So it's basically the baby knocking on mom's ovary and saying, hey, I'm in here, don't menstruate. And so that is what I did. Once I implanted in my mother's endometrium, burrowed in a little bit, and then I started pumping out chemicals to tell my mom, uterus is occupied, do not slough. So, as you can see, timing of that stuff matters. So if fertilization were to occur in the uterine lumen, that would not give the corpus luteum enough time to receive the human chorionic gonadotropin signal and prevent sloughing. Because if a, a certain period of time goes by um, that the corpus luteum doesn't receive input, it just auto-destructs. So it's programmed to go away if no pregnancy occurs, and then it'll pop up again the next month. So if the timing is off, you get what is called a spontaneous abortion. And I know that abortion is a politically charged word. What I mean here is not a medically assisted abortion, not an on-purpose one. It is the creation of a new individual at the wrong time and in the wrong place, which results in that individual, that embryo, being sloughed off with the endometrium because the timing was wrong for the corpus luteum to notice the embryo. And so the corpus luteum degraded, triggering the sloughing of the endometrium and the embryo along with it. So people with ovaries and a uterus experience spontaneous abortions fairly frequently because the timing is so important. They just don't ever know it because why would they? It's, there's nothing to feel. There's no change to note by then. 
Um, and so the reason I say that is just to make note that uh, people who have difficulty conceiving, sometimes the timing is off, or people that don't know why they're having difficulty conceiving, any number of things could go wrong. You could have a uterine tube that's blocked. You could have the timing be off. There's all kinds of things that can prevent a pregnancy from either occurring or sticking. And the majority of them, we don't even notice because they're just a normal part of reproductive biology that's too small for us to sense them. Nothing wrong with it. It just is. So, once I'm an embryo and I begin burrowing, I pump out human chorionic gonadotropin to tell the corpus luteum to stick around, and then I begin cooperatively with my mom building a placenta. So I send rootlets into the endometrium, and those rootlets associate themselves with my mother's blood vessels so that the rootlets can receive nourishment from those blood vessels. And that begins to form the placenta, and the placenta is, it's doing a lot of things, but two of the most important things are providing the fetus with oxygenated, oxygenated nourishing blood, and the other is, of course, uh, providing progesterone so that the corpus luteum can go away um, and the progesterone produced by the placenta will mostly carry the rest of the endocrine uh, requirements of pregnancy. So it's also an endocrine organ and it secretes estrogens as well. So that was a verbal audio tour of the female reproductive system, a description of the events leading up to, during, and after fertilization. And we discussed a little bit about how fertilization can work and not work and why the timing matters as it relates to the events of the uterus and the events of the ovary. Um, and so hopefully now you have a more holistic and picture and a deeper understanding of the reproductive biology of people with ovaries and a uterus. So in the next episode, I'm going to do the same kind of virtual walkthrough, but with uh, XY individuals, people with penis and testes usually, um, their reproductive biology and what's special and unique about it, because it's equally interesting on the other side, um, but that is for another episode. So thank you for your attention, and I will see you in the next episode.